Thank you. Well, we should we should pray as we come to God's word. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, give us ears to hear your word. Speak to us today that we might be transformed in the likeness of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, you should have an outline on the back of your handout. Uh, so you'll see there, there's a few people that we meet today. Um, and I've left a little space for some implications uh, which you can fill in as we go through. You don't have to leave that to the end as implications come up. Um, but I thought we'd, we'd mix it up a little bit today. And we'll, uh, I've got Bertie who's going to come and do the Bible reading uh, at, at a couple of different points uh, through our sermon. Um, there we go. My, my PowerPoint is coming. Um, where are we in, in uh, the book of 2 Samuel? Well, I've called it uh, David's Escape and the House of Saul. Today we'll meet a couple of characters um, who... Uh, bring, bring back memories of the house of Saul, the previous king. Uh, and then we'll also meet um, the sons of Zariah, who are from the household of David. But here we are in this, um, in this grand betrayal, uh, Absalom, David's son's grand betrayal of David. And uh, they, can't, they can't help but make you think of these kind of movie moments, right? Uh, you've got uh, Cyber in the Matrix, uh, the betrayal uh, there, uh, maybe uh, closer to home for those of you who've got kids, uh, um, uh, Ernesto, uh, his betrayal of his friend Hector in Coco, uh, an awful, awful betrayal. Uh, we've also got uh, Prince Hans in Frozen. Uh, he turns out to not be quite a Prince Charming. Uh, and of course, you've got that classic, uh, well depending on whether you, you reckon the new ones are classic or not. Uh, Anakin uh, Skywalker, his betrayal uh, of not only Obi-Wan, but of the Force uh, turning into uh, Darth Vader. And uh, in, in, uh, in that movie, uh, which uh, many of us might think is not a very good movie uh, overall, but that's okay, uh, it's a good, good try. Uh, in, in this scene between Obi-Wan and Anakin Skywalker, um, uh, Obi-Wan claims to have the higher ground, which has apparently become a meme. Um, I don't know what that is, but anyway, we'll, we'll figure that out. Uh, but in the end, uh, Anakin uh, ends up lying, uh, limbs cut off, burning up uh, from lava. And uh, what we expect though we've all seen the other movies and, and heard the story. But what we expect to be his last words are, I hate you. I hate you. And Obi-Wan's last words in return to Anakin are, you were my brother, Anakin. I loved you. It's that grand betrayal, isn't it? But unlike movies, uh, Absalom's betrayal of his father well, that happened in history. You'll see a, a picture from our passage today. This happened in history. King David was betrayed by his son Absalom. Can you imagine it? It's a tragic betrayal of a father for power. But it's not unique. Uh, strangely, the killing of a king by his son to gain power for himself has happened in monarchies all over the world, which seems a bit strange when the sun's the heir anyway, but that's what, that's what seems to happen. One notable difference here, though, with our story is that David, King David, has a special place 
as God's anointed king over his people. As David, in our passage today, escapes Absalom's inevitable siege of Jerusalem, David makes his way further and further from Jerusalem, and the people he encounters along the way begin to change. Today we're going to see David interact with three more people, as I mentioned, two from the house of Saul and one from David's own house. But retracing a little bit of what we saw last week, David had met uh, Ittai. So I've got a little bit of a diagram there. Uh, Ittai the Gittite, uh, which I think Ben described as It the Git. Um, Anyway, uh, he was actually a good guy. Um, He... uh, Itai, he was a foreigner who arrived uh, only yesterday. You'll see him kind of in the middle of the screen. Um, Only yesterday, and yet swore loyalty to David even to death. Uh, It was a show of uh, military support uh, for David's kingship. And uh, we also met uh, the priests, Zadok and Abiathar. Uh, You'll see them uh, over on your right uh, with the Levites. Uh, They arrive with the Ark of God, and there's a show of religious affirmation and support of David. Um, And David sends them back as his trusted spies. And then Hushai, uh, who's an Israelite uh, from, who's an archite, uh, but uh, that's from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, and he's a friend of David. He comes, and he was probably a bit of an older man, uh, and maybe had poor mobility, but great wisdom. Uh, And so David sent him back as a double agent to pose as an advisor for Absalom. And so David had some political support. But now David starts to encounter uh, some people who raise questions about this apparently ubiquitous support that David has been experiencing as he leaves Jerusalem. Today, we first meet Ziba, who is a servant of the household of Saul, Uh, And then we meet Shimei, who I'm going to pronounce Shimei. You can pronounce him Shimei if you like. But I've had a look at the Hebrew, and it looks like it might actually be pronounced Shimei, um, which is quite fun. I am not, (laughs) I am not, don't don't lock me into that. Anyway, he's a a man from Saul's clan. And so today we're going to move from the unconditional loyalty of a foreigner in Ittai sorry, where are we, we? to questionable loyalty uh, that we see um, first from the servant of the former king of Saul uh, and then outright death threats uh, from a Benjamite who's also part of Saul's clan. We'll also see what appears to be um, some fierce loyalty towards the end uh, from the nephew of David, Abishai, uh, which we might actually see might be something a bit more sinister. And so these encounters today, as we, as we continue David's journey from Jerusalem, are going to challenge us to consider the responses that people have to the Lord's anointed, as well as David's attitude in these encounters and the sovereign purposes of God in maintaining David's kingship throughout this. Now, in our passage, uh, in contrast with the great haste that David's leaving Jerusalem, uh, the description continuing from last week, actually takes place in quite slow motion. We get details of these encounters, and so we're meant to, it's meant to draw our attention to these interactions between David and individual, individuals. So we'll first turn to Zeba, and Zeba turns up with large amounts of provisions just at the right time 
So I'm going to invite Bertie up to read verse 1 to 4. Let's read it together. So 2 Samuel 16, uh, verses 1 to 4. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. The king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. The king then asked, where is your master's grandson? Ziba said to him, he is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks, today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. Then the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth's is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favour in your eyes, my lord the king. Thanks, Bertie. What do you think of Ziba? And what do you think of David's decision? I'd like to actually get you to have a 30-second chat to the person next to you. If you don't have someone next to you, find someone behind you. Uh, have a chat to the person next to you. What do you think of Ziba? And what would you have done? Would you have done what David did? Have a chat. 30 seconds. All right, your 30 seconds is up. What did you think of Ziba? Legit or not? So just as David goes over the summit of the Mount of Olives, he encounters Ziba, who was the steward of Mephibosheth. And we first met Ziba in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Um, Why have I got nothing on that slide? Oh, well, that's all right. Nope. Oh, are we out of order? That's all right. Don't worry about it. All good. Okay, so we first met Ziba in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Um, and back then, day, well, a long time ago, David had sworn an oath of friendship to Saul's son, Jonathan. So Saul's son, Jonathan, as well as their descendants, right? An oath of friendship. Uh, and so in 2 Samuel uh chapter 9, David had asked, having become king, is there anyone left in the house of Saul for whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake because of the oath? And so Ziba is this servant or steward in the house of Saul uh, who's summoned and tells David about Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Now, say that five times quickly, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. Poor guy, not only does he have a difficult name, uh, he is actually described as being lame in both feet. So he was dropped um, as a baby by the midwife um, and has become lame in both feet. Uh, But for the sake of his father, Jonathan, David restores Mephibosheth 
to all or just restores to him all that belonged to his grandfather Saul, right? And he actually says to Mephibosheth that he will always eat at David's table like one of his sons. It's a huge privilege uh, for a man who's both the descendant of the overthrown rival King Saul, uh, but someone who also has a disability. No, there was no equal opportunity or NDIS or anything like that back then. Uh, this is a pretty significant thing. Um, and Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9, when David says this to him, Mephibosheth identifies himself in derogatory terms. He calls himself a dead dog like me, right? That's how he describes himself. Um, but Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And so David appointed Ziba at that time to be the steward of Saul's estate for Mephibosheth, to look after all the bits and pieces that are going on. And so just at the moment when all these people have been turning up to help David, who should turn up but Ziba, and he's bearing these gifts. Now, last week, we saw that on the heels, right on the heels of David's prayer for Ahithophel's counsel to be turned to foolishness, Hushai arrived as the answer to David's prayer. And so likewise here, Ziba, who's the most unlikely provider, so one of the house of Saul, arrives with just what David needs in this moment. It seems like God's hand is moving events, even though it seems like the human beings are in control. But David asks, why have you brought these? Now, possibly this reflects some suspicion on his part. He... uh, even though uh, Ziba, uh, Ziba's answer has the dexterity of a modern politician in a radio interview, um, avoiding the issue and stating the obvious, the food is uh, for you to eat, the wine is to drink, and the donkeys are for you to ride on. Yes, thank you. That, that much was obvious. It's akin to what brought you along to church this morning, a car. Yes, true, but we're not really getting anywhere, are we? But David seems to mostly accept the answer. But what he really wants to know is, are these coming from Mephibosheth? And what are the implications for David and his support? So he follows up by asking where Mephibosheth is. And Ziba claims that despite his apparent loyalty to David, that Mephibosheth has abandoned David and is seeking to reclaim the kingship of the family of Saul. What do you reckon? Well, David's immediate response is to hand over all of Mephibosheth's property to Ziba without hearing any further evidence, perhaps giving us an indication of some of the failings of his handling of the Justice Department that Absalom had been hinting at when he laid the foundation for his coup. Clearly, David has only heard one side of the story, And the moment probably doesn't seem like a very good moment to be making rash decisions, but it seems like David's trust in the loyalty of Saul's household uh, may not be very strong. But it does seem a bit ridiculous, doesn't it, that David listened to Ziba. After all, Mephibosheth had been eating at the king's table like one of his sons. But hang on a minute. Being likened to David's sons isn't actually such a great thing at the moment, is it? 
Perhaps such a charge might seem plausible to a man in grief like David. But it's not probable, is it? Really, by no stretch of the imagination could Mephibosheth have thought that Absalom's rebellion might result in him becoming king. Certainly, at that time in history, a man with a significant disability would not have been a serious possibility for the throne. And the rebellion hadn't come from the tribe of Benjamin at all. It had come from David's own ambitious son, who was hardly likely to then put a descendant of Saul on the throne after all his work, would he? And as far as we know, Mephibosheth had shown no signs at all that it was something he would have even wanted. Unfortunately here, David demonstrates the capacity that most of us have to believe the worst of others immediately, doesn't he? Perhaps David can somewhat be excused by the stress of the moment, but it shows that his weaknesses that we've seen in the last few chapters have not been left behind in this crisis. He's still finding it difficult to resist pressure from those close by. And so David accepts the material aid and he makes a hasty legal decision. One that will catch up with him later in chapter 19 in a couple of weeks. Mephibosheth, when David returns to Jerusalem, comes and it's clear that he's been mourning during that whole time and he claims that Ziba was lying. It's betrayal in the midst of betrayal. Ziba has seen the betrayal of King David by his son Absalom as an opportunity for his own betrayal of his master Mephibosheth. And it seems like Ziba is actually just a scoundrel in it for his own gain. Betrayal in betrayal. But Ziba and Mephibosheth have brought to mind for us today King Saul and his household and his clan. And so the next character to cross David's path continues this thread of the narrative. We meet Shimei, a Benjamite of the clan of Saul. So let's read from chapter 16, verse 5 to 13. Now, when I looked up the name, I didn't like dancing, so I'm going to say Shimei. That's what I have written here. <laughs> uh, so from verse 5. As King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more then, this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery 
and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. Thanks, Bertie. And uh, it's just fantastic that you've prepared the Bible reading. So I'm really, I'm really thankful for that because that's a, that's a really cool thing. Well, what do you think of Shimmy? What do you think of Shimmy having read that next part? Is he right? Do you think he's right to curse David? Is he right about his claims? Why don't you have another 30-second chat with the person next to you? What would you do if you were David? And do you think Shimmy is right? 30 seconds. All right, that's your 30 seconds. It's pretty quick. What did you think of Shimmy? Was he right? Did he have any truth in what he said? What would you have done if you were David? Now, Shimmy, son of Gera, is, uh, he's apparently a prominent man uh, in the clan of the house of Saul. And uh, later in chapter 19, uh, he'll turn up again, um, but accompanied by a thousand Benjamites. So it seems like, seems like he's a guy. Uh, and... Um, he, his expression that he, that he puts to David, uh, all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, uh, he's probably blaming David for the deaths of Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army. We'll see that, we saw that in um, chapter 3, 26 to 27. Um, Ishbosheth, who was a son of Saul uh, in chapter 4. And um, he's possibly claiming as well, uh, in chapter 21, verse 1 to 9, which we haven't actually got to yet, but is part of the epilogue of the book, so it's not necessarily in chronological order, um, there were, there's the death of Saul's sons and grandsons. Um, and so we're not sure if it had happened by this point yet, and that's what Shimi is upset about or, or not, uh, and possibly even blaming death, uh, sorry, David for the death of Saul himself. But the writer of Samuel throughout has been at pains to show that David is not guilty of these deaths. See, David actually curses Joab and Abishai for the killing of Abner. He curses their family um, and says that may their guilt be on their heads. He executed Rechab and Bana for killing Ishbosheth. And the responsibility of the Gideonite vengeance in chapter 21 that we haven't got to yet, um, but may have already happened, well, it's actually laid squarely on Saul for breaking an oath the Israelites had had. And David had at multiple points refused to lay a hand on Saul, the Lord's anointed. You might remember that. And he mourns Saul's death. Clearly, Shimei's claims are not accurate with regard to the household of Saul. But 
there are some truths in what he says which must have hit home for David. See, David's hands are not innocent of blood. They're stained by the blood of Uriah. And the, his failure in his own sins and his failure to administer justice in his kingdom, and particularly in his family, are hanging over this whole situation. Now, David's in attitude to Shimei's cursing is interesting. He's humbled, and he patiently endures the cursing, reasoning that God might be speaking words he needs to hear, even through someone like Shimei. Now, in nations surrounding Israel at the time, life was dominated by the fear of curses. They were seen as powerful means of manipulating circumstances and causing people great harm. But believers in Yahweh, the true God, the God of Israel, their conviction in his sovereignty was so great that curses like these could simply be ignored. And there's no biblical evidence of the anti-curse rituals that were common in the ancient Near East in Israel. And so if Shimei really had grasped a truth, and this was God's judgment on David, not just Shimei's curse, well, it was God who was to be feared and not Shimei's curse. David had not been directly responsible for killing Saul and his family, but the truth of the accusation that David was a man of blood and a scoundrel must have hit home. However, if this was not God's judgment, and if Shimei was not in line with God's will, then the curse was irrelevant. And so David wasn't sure whether the current situation would end positively for him or not, but he was convinced that in either instance, God was the one who was sovereign. And so we also need to have the conviction that it's God and God alone who is sovereign. It's God who is to be feared and trusted. Jesus says in Luke, uh, I think I actually have this, I'm not sure where all of these have gone, but, uh, oh dear, where is, no, okay, we're, we're missing a few bits, that's okay. Um, sorry that it's not on the screen, but Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 4 to 5, that it's not those who kill the body who are to be feared, but the one who has authority to throw you into hell. That's God. Now, of course, people can do us great damage, but we need to be far more afraid of offending God's will than of any ill will or vendetta that someone else might have against us. And like David, it allows us to hand over any ultimate justice to God rather than to have to take vengeance immediately on people who wish us harm. Which, of course, this idea of justice leads us to the third person that David interacts with, Abishai, son of Zeruiah, brother of Joab, comes up to the king ready to defend him. And I might just, I'll leave the third Bible reading. I think we're okay. Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Hmm. Abishai and his brother Joab, they're, they're the sons of Zariah. And they're all too keen to shed blood, aren't they? 
the, uh, the suggestion is a little bit much, isn't it? Or what should we do? Let's cut off his head. Now, Joab's family, as I mentioned, has previously been cursed and reprimanded by David for murdering Abner. Uh, do we have this one? I'm not sure. Here we go. Oh, we've got it. Um, in 2 Samuel 3, 29 to 30, uh, David says, May his blood fall on the head of Joab and on his whole family. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch or who falls by the sword or who lacks food. Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel in the battle at Gibeon. Joab and his brother Abishai are keen to shed blood. And we see in chapter 19 when Shimi reappears, Abishai again will request permission to kill him. He's a one-trick pony. So what appears to be fierce loyalty from the nephew of David, Abishai, well, it's probably more of just a sadistic thirst for blood. Abishai, in typical fashion, he sought permission to chop off Shimi's head, presumably to stop him saying things, just as years before he wanted to kill Saul when he was in the camp with David. So while Abishai and his brother Joab, they're positioned on David's side, well, it seems like managing these bloodthirsty men is a challenging task in itself for David. They're always looking for the next opportunity to shed blood. They seem more like impulsive adolescent boys than men who David has to constantly manage. They have no self-control now, yesterday, we uh, went to a park near Concord with my son, Ezra, and uh, this park had pretty epic play equipment. It looked awesome on Google Maps, so we went there. Uh, but it also had a, uh, quite a significant part with sand and running water. Um, now, my son, Ezra, is, is uh, between one and a half and two. He's about 20 months. Uh, and so looking on Google Maps, we were like, oh, it looks awesome, but we were a bit reluctant because uh, Ezra was in his nice clothes to go out for lunch and dinner. And so, of course, when we got there, well, we kind of knew this was going to happen. First thing Ezra does is head straight for the sand and water. He can't help himself. It's his, it's his thing. No matter how good the other play equipment was, wet sand is inevitably where he'll head straight towards. It seems like the sons of Zariah are grown men but they can't help themselves. But they don't run towards wet sand. All they want to do is kill someone. All they want to do is take off someone's head. And David has to manage them like a child who runs for the wet sand and has to be told off. In his own words, after they killed Abner in 2 Samuel 3.39. Oh, sorry, I thought we had that. No, we don't. That's okay. Um, David says, though I am the anointed king, I am weak, and these sons of Zeruiah are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. They're too strong for David. They're like sharks drawn to the smell of the potential for blood. And so even though they're meant to be on David's side, even though 
This seems like a strong display of loyalty for David. David strongly dissociates himself, not just from this particular action, but from the whole approach of the sons of Zeruiah. And so we're perhaps being led to question whether in one sense, at least, Abishai and Joab are being presented as much as enemies of David as Shimei was. Their supposedly fierce loyalty to the Lord's anointed is actually just a selfish excuse, a cover for them to kill. But in contrast, as David flees, he demonstrates his trust in God. It's as if he cannot afford to fight because trust in God is the basis of his position, both for his actions and his kingship. And so he entrusts himself to God's dealings with him. When Shimei hurls insults at him, David's reaction is to suggest that God sent Shimei with his insults and that it's God's business to recompense Shimei for his insults, not David's. In his response to Abishai, David refers twice to Shimei acting on divine instruction, the first time as a possibility and the second time as a certainty. Now, the exchange with Abishai and with Shimei, it presents David so differently to what we've seen recently, doesn't it? Much more like David before he became king when we first met him. One who is willing to accept what comes from the hand of God in view of his wrongdoing. It's one who does not grasp hold of his power, but endures curses and submits himself to God's hand. One like a Messiah of God. You'll see on the screen a couple of passages. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not grasp hold of his authority. We see that Christ was cursed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And you'll see in the prophet Isaiah speaking about Jesus many hundreds of years earlier, we see that Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Finally, after some terrible chapters, we start to see hints of David in the likeness of our ultimate Messiah, Jesus, one who did not grasp hold of his authority, one who was endured curses, and one who was suffering but entrusted himself to God. David failed in so many ways, so many ways. We saw that last time I was here. It was tragic. But he was still God's chosen king. And he still points us forward to the ultimate and perfect king, God's son, Jesus. And so by the end of our passage, David has arrived. He's at a safe enough distance from Jerusalem, just at the time, at the very time when Absalom and his followers reached the city. God's been at work orchestrating David's escape, providing for his anointed with all he needs even though it has been through people 
who themselves have mixed motives, people whose own loyalties are in question. And so God has been at work maintaining his covenant with David as his anointed king. God is still with David. He is still for David. And so too should Israel be. The accounts of those whose friendship and loyalty to David are real and free from self-interest that we saw last week, Ittai, Zadok, and Hushai, um, are followed by the mention of Ahithophel's disloyalty and Shimei's enmity to David. And in the middle of the account, we have Zeba's arrival where his loyalty to David is a bit ambiguous and his disloyalty to Mephibosheth seems clear from chapter 19. We're being asked to reflect on the nature of loyalty and the nature of friendship and of trust. And as well, we see that betrayal of David isn't just selfish and political. It's also a spiritual exercise in betraying God. For all David's failings, and there were many, he was still the king that God had given to Israel. He pointed to the need for a perfect King Jesus, but he also showed us glimpses of what our perfect king would look like. For all David's faults and sometimes cluelessness about the way that he relates to Yahweh, he is resolute in his commitment to Yahweh. He points us forward to Christ's perfect loyalty to his father. His suffering and endurance of curses, he entrusted himself to God, reasoning that God would keep his promises and his covenant and restore him, that God would administer justice in the end. And so we can learn something of what it looks like to entrust to God all that we have, even in the midst of suffering or betrayal for others, by others. We see a picture of loyal devotion to God, even when the lot we're dealt is not so good. We can see in David a picture of humility about our own sin and that God may even be disciplining us for our own good, that he might restore us. And we can also strive to be people of integrity in our relationships, not backhand dealing or manipulating or all-out opposition like we saw in the people that David interacted with today, but people who act with integrity and kindness and honesty, even if it's not reciprocated in the people that we meet. Because this is how God has dealt with us, isn't it? He has shown us kindness even when we were his enemies, though we abandoned him and though we crucified his anointed king, God has not forsaken us. Let's pray. Not sure what's going on there. Heavenly Father, we don't often think about loyalty. We don't often think about loyalty. But Father, we do pray that as we've thought about loyalty and as we've thought about your anointed King David and your ultimate anointed son and King Jesus, we pray that we would consider and see the way that loyalty and friendship and trust play out in this passage. 
we ask that you would give us strength to always trust in you and in your son, Jesus. Even when we're faced with circumstances or people who seem to be trying to undermine us, who seem to be undermining your purposes, who seem to be calling into question your goodness. We pray that we would never abandon your anointed Jesus. We ask, Father, that we would uh, trust him in all circumstances and hand our burdens over to him so that we might patiently endure. We pray that if our circumstances are in fact disciplined for our own sin, that we would count ourselves thankful to you, that we might grow in godliness and that we might be restored uh, to trust and following you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.